All right, guys, welcome to In the Zone. I'm Garrison Roy, and today we have a full-length interview with Kyle Lindley. But before we start, just wanted to make a quick uh, announcement. would love for you guys to share the show, right? We want to have a nice value exchange uh, between this. So if you learned something, you thought it was interesting, or uh, you know, just got anything out of it, right? Or even if you thought it was funny and maybe you disagree with it, even you know, you can share that too, right? Uh, but we're not doing ads or anything on the podcast, right? One, because it's annoying. And two, I don't want people to tell me what to say. So, um, you know, we're out here trying to grow the game of baseball and, uh, you know, just push it forward and help guys get better any way possible. But with that being said, Kyle, what's up, dude? What's going on? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. So Kyle reached out to me via Twitter. I was like, dude, we'll love to have you on the podcast. So we're here for it, man. We're here for it. Hell yeah. Um, I listened to, to a few episodes. I was actually just listening to the Will Carroll, Will Carroll episode um, on my way to work today. So yeah, excited okay. to get on here. Awesome. Awesome, dude. Yeah, man. So let's talk a little bit. Give us a little brief intro about yourself, you know, like sure. how you got into the sports science world with Driveline, maybe even a little bit about, you know, your your playing career a little bit, if you want to touch on that and then and then go from yeah, or lack thereof. Uh, right, yeah. So I, I only played I only played through high school. Um, I did pretty well in high school and in school. Um, big into math. My family kind of pigeonholed pigeonholed me into uh, engineering. Uh, it's a family of engineers, so um, kind of just naturally went that direction and figured. Um, at the time, I didn't really know about baseball player development, so I was just like, okay, I'm not that good right now. Probably not going to make it. So figured just lean into the education thing. So I went to. Arizona State, um, as a <laughs> yeah, that's right, baby. I uh, got to represent Forks Up um, as a biomedical engineering major. Did my four years there, and then about halfway through my third year, there's this opportunity. If you're based on certain academic success, if you um, want to, you can do an accelerated master's program um, in the bi- biomedical engineering like track. So. Did that. Uh, only took a year. Basically, you started your senior year. So while I was doing my capstone, uh, worked on uh, starting my master's uh, degree and then completed that a year later. So that's my education background. And then in 2017, actually, um, this story is kind of nuts. I didn't even know about Driveline. Um, for those who are don't know me, I'm currently at Driveline Baseball um, in Kent, Washington. I'm a sports scientist and I manage uh, the Pulse product but I didn't even know about driveline in 2017. Um, I talked to a lot of players who were like, yeah, I've been following Kyle Bodie since he was, you know, like since like 2010 when he started this thing was yeah, writing blogs yeah, on his website. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty wild. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the exact date, but um, I mean, that sounds pretty accurate though. So to give you a little bit of background, I've been, you know, in the baseball world for, you know, all the sports science stuff since probably 2008, 2009. So where it all, yeah, where it all originated, um, kind of started for me at the Texas baseball ranch Mm -hmm. That's where I was introduced to Kyle and Bauer was also really big out there too. Mm -hmm. Um, so like that's where kind of things started to trek a little bit. And I remember seeing Kyle speak, I've really watched a recording. I wasn't there, but it was like one of his like December, like symposium type things. And he was talking about similar things to the modus. Um, I'm just trying to find ways to kind of measure have a measurable because everybody's just kind of guessing with it back then. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. You know, yeah, for sure. Really pushing it uh, back then. And then, you know, he kind of, uh, you know, he was a part of like the little conglomerate and then he was like, ah, no, screw this. I'm going to do my <laughs> own thing. So I was like, Hey, more power to you, dude. That's right. He's an entrepreneur at heart. Um, so yeah, my buddy actually, he was like, I'm going up to Seattle. I was looking for an internship because as an engineering student in most majors, you're just like, by the time you get to your junior or senior year, if you don't have a summer internship on your belt, if you're not looking, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah, no doubt. But I was looking, yeah. So I was looking at um, 
summer internships and my buddy was like, yeah, I'm going up to Seattle. Have you seen this uh, facility? Let me show you some videos. And I saw Tyke Green's uh, live AB videos. I'm like, this place look, looks nuts. And I was like, that's cool. Okay. Maybe I'll try to find a internship in Seattle uh, and just spend the summer up there. We can just explore a new city, whatever. But then I was like looking more into driving. I'm like, man, maybe my engineering background could actually be applied here. I wonder if they are down for an intern. Uh, and then it just happened. Um, they just happened to have a couple R and D applications open for an intern internship that summer. So, um, applied, got a call back very lucky because, uh, these days the applicant pool is much, uh, much more competitive than I was at at the time. We have these, you know, PhD biomechanists applying and everything for a sports science internship. And it's just, it's, I would never be, I wouldn't get a call back these days. Um, but yeah, so that was my introduction to driveline and, and kind of baseball biomechanics in general. I didn't even know there was a, there was an industry for this in school. I was planning on just graduating and working at an engineering, um, firm and doing quality control or whatever. Most of my classmates, um, you know, ended up getting into, and then, um, yeah, so I went back to school, did some remote like data processing stuff for driveline while I was finishing up school. Cause previously I was working at parking and transit at ASU. Uh, so it was one of those guys, Handing out tickets and collecting money at uh at parking garages in uh, Bodie was like, yeah, dude, you just just don't do that anymore. Just work yeah. for us remotely. <laughs> um, so I did that, and then after graduating in 2019, I uh, came up here full time. So, um, and then just briefly, I started off with some sport, sports science projects, uh, mostly around sensors because I had some sensor background with. I uh, actually interned at Naraxon as well, which is an EMG company, um, historically, but they they were developing a sensor based motion capture system, um, to get into sports more. And then, uh, so I was working on some sensor stuff, sensor validation, things like that. And then also some gaze tracking stuff. And then I've kind of transitioned over time, but, uh, still sports scientist at heart and every chance I can, I try to dive into the insane database of, uh, data we're collecting around here to, to try to find some insights. I'm sure it's an absolute mecca of just smorgasbord of all the things you have to filter through, right? Like some of it's like, all right, I don't know if this is useless or yep. <laughs> well, like we'll find out. <laughs> so hundred percent. There's a lot of stuff we just don't get to too, because that's the value of having a data-driven practice is you're collecting data to run the business. But mm-hmm. at the same time, if you like take a second and look back at all the data and are able to organize it, uh, which is no small task. Um it's just like built-in research. So um, yeah. yeah, there's a, there's a ton of opportunity there. Yeah. Well, and I think back whenever drive-on was first even starting to come up, a lot of people were intimidated by like the data-driven approach because mm-hmm. they were just like, oh, it's more than just numbers. It's more than just this. Like, look, we're not trying to replace the nuance of coaching or like the art of coaching. It's just like, you just have measurables now to actually, use, oh, yeah. you know, um, because right now it's like the, the big phrase back in the day was like, Hey, like if you want to improve it, you got to measure it, whether it's how much, you know, velocity you were throwing or, mm-hmm. you know, however many reps you were doing in a particular exercise or the weights that you were doing. Right. Like, you know, now we have a lot more intricate and more, um, I guess, specific ways to measure those or like even like types of, um, you know, just speed units, tendo units, things like that for weight. Yeah and stuff like that right so like it's definitely shifted a lot over the past shoot probably 20 years now so for sure and it's i mean early on it was just measuring outputs right like we were Mm -hmm. measuring velocity like you mentioned and even if you ask our pitching coaches at driveline today even though they have access to all the inputs now you know we do our biomechanics assessment Mm -hmm. um we have high speed video and like so we have videos of grips and everything. So those I consider inputs and not necessarily things that we were able to measure before. But if you were to ask, especially Bill Heasel, our director of pitching, um, if you were to ask him if he only had one piece of tech, what would he choose? Or one one measurement, or whatever? He's just like a whiteboard and a radar gun. Like, I just want to know my velocity and put the velocity up on a board, like a leaderboard for my athletes. And, you know, they'll figure it out, uh, ideally over time. So it's just, you know, another piece, that, like all that goes from the rehab side all the way down to like, Hey, if you're trying to do, uh, you know, velocity enhancement, right. Cause oh, yeah. more just based off of a, of a feel of what you're mm-hmm. trying. To do. So yeah, for sure. No doubt. Um, so I guess, we could kind of switch this in to talk a little bit more about modus. I know 
or now it's called rebranded into pulse. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when it first started coming up, you know, it was this little sensor and they're like, Oh, Hey, how are they going to pick up everything there? But from what I understand, it's very similar to like some of the other wearables, like I have a whoop strap, right? So it's, it's more specific to the numbers tailored towards you, but you're looking for just big changes from that, not necessarily comparing that to everyone and having a specific like model for where they need to be. Is that, am yeah. I on that? Yeah, for sure. There's been some validations, some third-party validations. Uh, one notable, notable one from uh, Mayo Clinic, Dr. Christopher Camp. Um, he's affiliated with the twins. He he did a really good study, a concurrent validity study, kind of comparing pulse me- measurements to or modus, whatever you want to call it. Honestly, um, yeah, yeah. compared the, the, to the little sensor that's on your. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we we like to call it. I like your comparison to Whoop. We like to call it uh, a pedometer for throwing because at its core, a lot of its value is just having an accurate throw count. But I'll get into that in a, in a little bit. Um, but yeah, you did this did this study and so eloquently kind of talked about and discussed in his paper about how it's not necessarily accurate. We're not going to be able to tell your actual the the you know, absolute torque that's on your elbow oh, yeah. and throw you the EMGs and everything else to be able to like, actually, oh, yeah, you know, for sure. Or I yeah, exactly. maybe we get to that point. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even, even marker, like expensive marker and markerless marker based and markerless motion capture isn't going to give you a perfect answer there, but yeah. um, he's like, it might not be accurate there. It might not give you the most accurate arm slot, but like within your, within each athlete, it's reliable enough to, to, you know, compare and use for a rehab tool and use just for a workload management tool. So yeah, well, yeah um, that's kind of, you want to stay in that bandwidth for, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the athlete is, it's where you're looking for is it, okay. Did you pop up out of that or drop below that to just kind of have an indicator? Like, okay, what's the Delta? What changed? A hundred percent. And we're getting, we're getting to this point where, you know, when we acquired Modus, when DriveOn acquired Modus in, in 2020, um, our main goal since then has been to just simplify things as much as possible because we want to kind of move away from people seeing it as a biomechanics. Like Ben, even Ben Hansen has been, he's, he basically created uh, this, the baseball product and he talks about it. It, it was never going to be like a high fidelity biomechanics measurement tool. It's more about workload than anything. Sure. And a lot of it is just about simplification. And we have our like training software track that's also has a ton of features. It's really complicated. It could, it's really powerful, but at the same time, it's like we just need to simplify it for people to understand it, be able to apply it better. So a lot of it's just like even you're talking about the acute to chronic workload ratio um, and keeping that within a certain certain range to hopefully um, you know optimize a player's fitness and and readiness for for their game day. Um, and also player like development over time, but you know, that even that can be complicated sometimes. And we're realizing that if we ask athletes how many throws they made yesterday or how many throws they made last week, or like if, or what's their routine going into a really good start, not everybody has a good answer. That's, that's really high feel and, uh, truly works. And especially when things don't go to plan. So we're realizing that maybe, even just a throw counter for now, if we kind of educate people on yeah. how much just having a good measure for how many throws you're making, maybe that's enough for right now. Yeah. Or it be- it's better than the old school clicker that you had right? <laughs> where the coaches are going on using that. Exactly. Exactly. How many people are you going to have 10 clickers at once? If your whole, if your whole team's <laughs> throwing, like you don't got 10 hands. No way. Yeah. That's <laughs> a lot to keep up with. Um, yeah. They have to do one at a time. And it's just not time efficient whatsoever. Um, no, but yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. Cause you know, whether it's a rehab setting or even, you know, how throwing plans just undulate over week to week or day to day through the week, right. The, the intensity is going to change. So I haven't seen it where you got, uh, guys have taken over, uh, to transition into pulse, but I don't, I don't know if there's a feature to track that in- intensity or not, but you know, that information, uh, is definitely needed to have that context, of, okay. Hey, like, were you going high effort? Were you on flat ground? Were you on mound? Right. Like be able to identify when those throws are being made in one environment, what situation. Yeah, for sure. Dean, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with Dean Jackson, but he played a little bit of pro ball and he's, he's pretty active on social media. Uh, he's a, he's a pitching coach here and works kind of on special projects, but his biggest latest one is um, 
doing what a lot of a lot of people I think are doing and trying to improve return to throw programs, not necessarily improve them, but just like make them more individualized and dynamic to how an athlete's actually doing because the sheet of paper that has the outline of what you're supposed to be throwing each day is like, it works for a lot of people, but it also like, doesn't, if somebody has a setback or if they don't get very much sleep for one week and then they, they end up not, or they end up being a little bit more sore than expected. It's not going to be able to react to that. So one of his big projects has been, he uses strictly arm speed from the sensor and throw count. And he just talks to the athlete and says like, you're going to throw, you have three options. You have, you can either throw 60 throws today, 80 throws today, or a hundred throws today. And this is, you know, a few months into the return to throw. So their, their fitness is pretty high. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And that might be like, I don't know if those are the actual numbers, but he'll do that. And then he'll save. And I don't, I don't want you to exceed X arm speed, X RPMs. And it's just a, a much more one, it gives the athlete a little bit of autonomy to be like, okay, I'm not feeling great today. I'm going to go with 60 throws instead of yeah, yeah. 80. And then it gives them a, a very clear intensity um, goal because if we're just saying, you know, stretch it out to 120 feet, like that could mean I'm pulling down to 120 feet. That could mean I'm lobbing it 120 feet and the actual load on your arm and your body can, can range quite a bit with just a, distance recommendations. So, um, that's one of the biggest things. It is that, that it's that simple. It's that simple for, um, a lot of cases and even with healthy athletes, it's just like having a clear goal to chase with intensity, um, and then a throw count or a workload measure. And, and, uh, yeah, that's, it's, we're realizing that it, it can be that simple and can be, uh, super valuable for athletes. Skip ahead the next 60 seconds if you don't want to find out about a company I co-founded, Ink Sports Performance. So here's the scoop. At Ink Sports Performance, we get it. We were athletes ourselves, former college and professional pitchers. We were also perform- former college coaches as well. Rob and I, we don't do one-size-fits-all programs. We custom craft each training and throwing program and offer that one-on-one coaching support that you need where you're not just a number. We're all about that personal touch. We'll dive into your training videos, whip up some of the program designed to take you to your next level. Nothing cookie cutter here. So if you, one of your friends, or maybe a player that you know is serious about competing at the next level, hit us up on our website, give us a call, get that set up at inksportsperformance.com. And also just a heads up, we're also very selective who we take. Right, we only take a handful of dedicated athletes, and if you're not putting in the work, we'll have to say goodbye. So let's ink you in to the next level. No doubt, absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of those things too, where it's like you could always tell even before all the technology came in. Like, all right, this dude, I don't want to play catch with him because he's sixty feet away and throws absolute bullets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dude, like calm down. Like you're yeah. way too tense right now. Or then you got some dudes who's like, all right, yeah, I'm just going to toss today. And then they're like flipping it. And then their movement patterns are all changing. Cause they're just not even like putting any effort behind it. And you're like, all right, like, what are you actually getting out of this right now? Yeah. Yeah. You have those two extremes and you got to try to find that, you know, the, the best um, amount of stimulus there that they need for that day. Yeah. And we've used, we've been using it for our athletes in, internally. I mean, COVID shut us down. And then when we came back, we basically did a full rollout for every athlete that's in the facility and we try to use it for everybody online as well. But the main things that we realized is that the number one value point for athletes is realizing that their recovery days or whatever you call it, your low days, recovery day, what your hybrid bees, whatever the low intensity and, and sometimes low volume, sometimes medium volume days, most athletes that don't have really high feel are throwing too hard. And it's like, after a normal, maybe medium intensity, medium volume, like a hybrid A, if you're uh, into the hacking the connect chain exercises, like you're, you might feel okay the next day. So you might want to throw a little bit harder, but you just, you're not going to be able to predict how you're going to feel in three days when you have to perform or when you have to get to that velo day or whatever. Like we programmed in this recovery day for a reason, because long-term, you know, the uh, stimulus recovery adaptation, like cycle, we understand this and we understand how it 
the effect it has on your development. Um, and it's not just, you can't just like go to your Mac, uh, as like as hard as you can throw each day based on how you feel. I learned, I learned that the hard way. For yeah. Sure. Oh, really? Did, did you like a lot? Of, I mean, if you're the thing we have talked about in the past a little bit is if you start using like a training program and you see some results, you're like, okay, I, you know, gained two ticks on my uh, fastball. Naturally, you're going to be like, I want to do this more. Like I want to do more and more because I want to keep getting that two oh. more ticks or I want to get, get three ticks. Um, but it that's just not, not how the body works and you just need some recovery. Yeah. I mean, so this was obviously way back before even, you know, I, I think a lot of the strength world did kind of influence like how undulating of throwing goes and it, it, it makes sense. Um, but you know, back in 2009, 2010, like either I wasn't aware of it or I was just like, Hey, like we're trying to pull down every single day and just yeah. after it. And somehow my arm adapted. I don't know how, but it did. <laughs> I never, I never broke any records with it because I was just taxing my nervous system all the time, you know? Um, but now I'm helping the guys not make those same mistakes. Yeah, know? for sure. Back then we, 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 I mean, it's not a joke because it sucks, but as coaches and development programs learn from the beginning, a lot of it's experimental. Um, and we try our best now to use the data we have available to us to, to not have to do the experimentation thing so that we can just get it right the first time and athletes don't have to go through that. But early days, it was, we call it tissue testing. It was just like, if you made it through the program, it's just like testing your tissue. It's not an optimal program for everybody. If you, if you don't have, uh, whatever, uh, if you're like not well adapted, then it's just, you're probably just not going to make it through the, through the program or whatever. So adapt or die. Yeah. Yeah. That's There's right. a lot to be said with that too. Like, you know, this is more of the nuance of coaching. You have a guy who's like, I don't know, 23, 24, he's been doing, let's say driveline-esque type programs for four or five years. And then you throw that at him. You're like, oh yeah, cool. Like he's going to be able to adapt because of all the other stuff that he's done before. Yeah. You know, so you have to take that like zoomed out, uh, macro viewpoint of things. hundred uh, percent. And as we, as we like get better and, and get more reps in and see more case studies and see people fail and see people succeed, we're able to tune it better for a program that meets the athlete where they are. It's more individualized for them. And we can find a program that doesn't have to test their tissue. And it just, you know, it, it just works for them. And we can, uh, you know, cast a, cast a wider net for, for athletes to get better. Most definitely. Most definitely. Cool. Well, yeah, man. So what else have you been kind of diving into? I know we've been kind of sticking on the, uh, the, the pulse side of things and, and workload management, which a lot of people, you know, I think the baseball world is starting to gain some traction there and actually start to figure out. I don't think everyone gets it, but you know, it's, it's definitely a lot more relevant now versus, you know, 10 years ago. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, this is, kind of related to, to pulse. I'm going to dive into a couple of the like research yeah. questions that I've been trying Let's to trying to answer the last, last couple of years. Um, but the, the first one, um, again, for, I, I, there's a whole business side of my job that I have to, I have to work on, but whenever I can, uh, try to dive into the data and see if I can do a little bit of research. Cause that's where, uh, that's where my heart is, I think. Um, but the most recent one is, is exactly how to measure intensity. Like we were talking about. Um, so is effort and Okay. I'll step back. So there's a couple different, uh, like possible measures of intensity. We can measure velocity and compare it to your max, max velocity. We can measure your arm speed and compare that to your, um, peak arm speed and be like, okay, if we want a 50% effort, what, what is the pres- prescribed like velo going to be? Um, and I've been diving into, cause typically it's like, okay, he's, this athlete has a recovery day today. We say we want it to be like 50% RPE based on our plan um, and knowledge of, of, uh, player development, but what's the number that he can shoot for, for that 50% effort, because if people are continually overshooting their recovery days and maybe we can give them a better goal. Um, but if you just take 50% of their peak velocity or peak arm speed, that's just not realistic. We've had a ton of, we've, we've had a ton of, um, experience with like, if somebody throws 80 and we tell them to throw a 40 mile an hour catch play throw, it's like, he's, he's not even going to be throwing at that point. Like he's dart throwing. Like he's, that's not, doesn't have any value. Like you, you might as well just being in doing a no throw recovery or like go do some exercises in the weight room or something. Yeah. So 
we took some research that we had done in the past, some data collection from last summer. Um, our biomechanist, Kyle Wasserberger, did his dissertation out here, and he basically did motion capture with athletes over basically while they were warming up. And then he also had them throw 50% RPE, 75% and 100%. And then he would do another round and say, um, okay, based on your 100% velocity, shoot for this velo- or velocity range for your 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a bunch of data over a wide range of intents, which is super valuable. And it's, it's not necessarily, it's one of the harder data sets to collect because it requires a lot of, a lot of processing and everything, and it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. But with that, we can see that the load, if we measure load by elbow torque, um, we, we can see that load isn't a, there's not a linear relationship with load and with velocity. So we can say, Basically, at 50% of the load, that's not equal to 50% of the velocity. So 50% of the elbow torque does not equal is not um, does not get you to your 50% of your max velocity. And we found that it's more of a logarithmic curve. So one of the latest things that I'm doing now is trying to figure out what are the actual percentage uh, recommendations that we can give athletes. So uh, it turns out that based on that model, 50% efforts or recovery day might be 65% of your peak velocity. And that's much more reasonable. So if you're, for example, I'm just going to use a hundred because it's, it's easier, easier to yeah. do the math. Yeah. But, uh, if you're, uh, throw hundred miles an hour with a five ounce, then on your recovery day, your five ounce throws probably shouldn't exceed 65% of that, uh, peak velocity. So in 65 is a much more reasonable, like Speaking from perfect person, it might be, might not be perfect, but from personal experience, like I can throw a 65 mile, I'm, I don't throw a hundred, but like, um, for me, it might be like 50 or something. I can throw a 50 mile an hour throw still with reasonable mechanics. Obviously there's going to be some differences, but yeah. um, so getting a lot of flow to it. You're not just like pushing it and you're also right. eating it either. Yeah, that's right. Um, so just trying to get closer there so we can implement it in our, some of our, uh, tools and products for athletes, because I mean, a lot of our interests are in being able to make this scalable so it can be cheaper and we can reach more athletes and stuff, but, um, basically trying to automate if let's, let's collect in the baseline, whatever we have an athlete's peak velocity and can we give them better instructions to make sure they're executing their program with accuracy um, to give them the better, the best chance that, that we've, they're our, what we think is their best chance to, um, to, to get better. For sure. No, I like that. Um, just a question that kind of comes to mind after, you know, you, you probably have some experience just seeing a lot of guys throw with mocap and stuff. Um, obviously the environment's different. Like you're in more of like the lab setting, mm-hmm. right. And warm ups. I, I had a, a small taste of that back whenever I was in college, I did a mocap uh, research with 10 guys on my team and had to link them all up. Not nearly as nice as y'all's cameras, but um, I found that a lot of guys moved a lot differently. One, probably because of the warm up and then just different setting, different environment. Um, but they almost like subconsciously like didn't want the sensors or anything to fall off. Oh, yeah. Cause it, they were relatively new to it. Right. So, you mm-hmm. know, like, versus someone who might be there for the full summer and they're like, Oh, Hey, this is like my fourth or fifth time on the mocap or something. Yep. Like that, right. So they're familiar with it and they're used to it. What would you say to a guy who like maybe is just first starting to come on that mocap and they're like, Oh, like this just, this feels awkward. Do mm-hmm. you still use that? information or do you take kind of take it with a grain of salt i guess my question. we take it with a grain of salt 100 percent um but that said so early on we had a lot of those problems the lab was never a training setting um in our old facility where we started doing motion capture it was it was literally just an empty warehouse and you were there was tripods around you you were throwing into like a homemade half bubble um and it's just like this clearly is, I'm, there's no hitter in the box. I'm not on dirt. Mm -hmm. There's no like seats around me. I can't see the sun. Um, so it's clearly not a a game scenario or even a bullpen scenario. And, and I think that was a, that was a big blocker for us early on, not only for getting, uh, people's getting people's like hundred percent throw. So we didn't know if we were getting their true mechanics, but also we just weren't able to do very much research at the high velocities, but we have since been able to just use various environmental tricks, 
um, and just conversations and everything to try to get them to relax a little bit. Um, we actually find that the younger players and people who have been around tech for more, uh, for more time, have a better time with it. And older players who come in, who've been maybe in pro ball for a long time, their motion, their velocity and motion capture is typically down. Like, I don't know, up to like eight to 10 miles an hour. And it's like, wow. okay, yeah, we really, we really like can't make too many, especially with the speed measurements, for example, shoulder internal rotation velocity is a big one that we measure and elbow extension velocity. So those obviously are not going to be accurate to what they're throwing in the game, but we've done a really good job with the current, um, current state of things where we just try to, you know, spark up conversation. We ask them what their favorite music is to PR to. We, um, are in a setting that's very similar to the training floor. We're in a little corner, so there's not a ton of people you know, watching and, and, uh, looking at them in their underwear, um, with, right. with a bunch yeah. of markers on them. And then we've also just done a really good job trying to figure out how to keep the markers on, uh, athletes, which it's kind of a funny process. People end up being sticky for like three days, but we'll throw firm grip on their, on their back and their arms and, or whatever it is, QDA. Um, and we just like, we give them some, uh, warm up pitches and we kind of just reassure them that they're not going to fall off and then just let them know if they do on the really high speed segments, like your hand or wrist or whatever, like it's usually the it's fine. One that always fell off for me. It was the wrist one first. Yep. Yeah. So we're using actual, uh, I don't know when you did it, but it was back um, in 20, 2017. So it was okay. like relatively early on. Um, yeah, it was my, it, that was my, uh, my honors thesis for, oh, and- so I nice, used nice. And yeah, I was so pissed off about it because the wrist one was the one <laughs> that I actually cared about the most, but I still had all the other data because uh, I was manipulating stride length. So I'd like had this okay. mound. We had one ground reaction force plate at the bottom. It was working with what we had. So I built the mound, put that right there. And then I just kind of changed like where the rubber was to where they would have like, okay, hey, like you got to land here. Obviously different goal, different setting to like you're throwing mm-hmm. into a net. 15 feet in front of you. So like you have no idea where the ball's going, you know, looking back, it was like, I probably could have done something a little bit different, but you know, you just work with what you got and, and kind of go from there. But yeah, for sure. And it's become such a culture thing where everybody like, especially with retests, like you said, with people who have done it before, they have their buddies who are in the facility training. So they just come over and see how their mocap is. Cause we use it as a velocity testing. It's gotten so comfortable for people that we use it as a velocity testing setting as well. So, uh, you know, friends and friends and uh, colleagues will come over and cheer you on and we'll be screaming at you. And we got the, we got the music blaring. we got like band, uh, band style speakers up there. So, um, we helps. do every, what's up. It definitely helps versus yeah. a general lab setting where I was at. It was like, okay, yeah, someone rehabbing their hip in the background and we're just letting it rip right here. Let's go. That's right. Yeah. So we've done a, we've done a pretty good job of making, it's basically a velo setting, but you just don't have as many people around you and your, and your underwear with markers on. So, um, we've tried to close that gap as much as possible, but we always, especially when we're looking back at the data, we have our database of, you know, various biomechanical measurements and we have to be like, okay, a good like data cleansing process would be making sure that, um, if we're going to be making, taking max effort, uh, insights away from this, we got to make sure that everything in there is like close enough to, to, uh, their reasonable velocity to, to be able to do that. That's a good, that's a good point for sure. It's something that we'll, we'll probably be struggling with for, for a long yeah. time, but that's also the value of markless motion capture, right? Yeah. Great point. That was actually my next kind of transition. There is a lot of, uh, I know for a fact, the twins have it probably most major league teams have them on their uh, spring training, like main field. And then probably some of their major league fields, pretty sure all 30 teams would probably eventually have it. I don't know. That's really kind of dependent on yeah. you know management and things like that, but it just makes sense, right? Like, is it going to be hundred percent accurate? No. Cause I mean, I have that same kind of dilemma with pro pitch AI, like they put any video on there and it's like, Oh, Hey, it says you released the ball here, but you can clearly see like three frames after is when you actually let go of the ball and you're like, okay, like yeah, not as the, the validity to it could be better, you know? So that, that's just probably for sure as, as the science and the, and the, uh, you know, research and everything gets better as well. 
But yeah. And as long as it could be wrong, but as long as it's always a similar amount of wrong in a, in a similar direction, yeah. like it's, it's chilling a lot of people. I mean, that's, that's no novel. It's not a novel uh, idea, but reliability in our business is, is more important than, than validity. And it's actually one of the things that I think is going to be most exciting for the next like few years. I think there was a, there was a period there where there were a, ton of tech products that were coming out and people were adopting. And I think they're still coming out, but a lot of groups are realizing that, okay, we made this investment in all this technology. How are we actually using it? And this happens in MLB organizations. This happens in facilities. Um, We see like kind of adoption, which is just purchasing the product. But Mm -hmm. I think most of the innovation that's happening now is how can that actually be applied in a way that doesn't slow you down. So like, just like the clickers, you know, if you could use throw count information, but if you have to um, say the uh, pitch counter was the newest product that you bought. Yeah, this is great. We can use it a lot, but if you don't I do it for everybody, do I like, is it something that I, it, it's actually sustainable for 150 athletes in the summer or even 50 athletes or 20 athletes. If you're, if you're one coach. Um, so a lot of it's just making that scalable and, um, especially with mark, especially with in-game data with with markerless, it's like it's so close. It's literally in the game, yeah. So it just unlocks the the amount of um, like actual game applied insights that you can you can take from that. And those are just those are not easy things to to do when you're just provided raw data, you know, yeah. and you don't have a ton Hopefully of experience not. there. So no yeah, at all. Yes. So so I think most of the innovation, honestly in the next uh, few years, it's just going to be in how to routinely and routinely apply this data with tools and, and uh, automated processes. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, my, I guess, thought process recently has been shifted more towards like, okay, Hey, like you have all this or you have the lab setting. How do you make it as game-like as possible? Like you said, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. it'd be the best example with that, but it's like, okay, like, do you have a hitter in the box? Do you have all these other pieces of information that you need to pick up or even for hitters? Like, okay, like, do you see the runners moving around or do you have the, it, it, you know, it's really hard to do in like a live AB setting, but like, if you see like the shortstops moving over here, like sometimes you don't really have enough time to really think about it, but you might subconsciously think like, Oh, Hey, everybody shifted over. I'm just going to, take it over here to the opposite side. Like you never really know like what all comes into play. Cause there's so many other variables coming at you. And that's the beauty of baseball, you know? But Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I heard you talking to, to Will about ecological dynamics. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting idea because a lot of research, a lot of researchers, you know, just like you said, it's hundred percent important what environment you're in and making sure that you're, you're making a training environment. That's one going to hopefully have the, or create the adaptations that you want. Um, and two, that's more game-like for, for where they actually have to perform, but it's also tough. I feel like coaches these days you're because you can't just get game-like practice every day, day in and day out. You're not, you can't feel the team all the time. You know, sometimes most of the time you just have a mound, you have a wall, you have pile balls, or you just have a a mound or not a mound and a net and some, and some just, you know, practice baseballs. Um, And I think it's a, it's a very interesting balancing act with trying to figure out how I can, like, is there a balance between a true constraints led approach and, and using that ecological dynamics to just put uh put an athlete in a situation um that we think is going to create the adaptations and and balancing that with being a coach actively coaching giving them tips giving them cues cuz like one end if you just don't really coach an athlete at all like those a- adaptations might it's, it might take forever they might get there but it might take forever it'll be a while yeah yeah cueing every cueing you know giving somebody 50 cues in a in a session probably isn't it either you know well, I, think. I mean that's that's another big thing too where i've kind of like you know you, you see guys in the and I, i'm guilty of this too like you're in that you know uh, training facility or whatever and you have that turf mound and you see the pitching coach like right there next to him saying all these things last time i checked nobody is standing next to you in a game that's yeah. right so that's I'm, right. I'm actually more apt to 
just be a stand-in hitter now, whether it's a nine sock or whatever, like I'll throw a helmet on to protect my face, but you know, yeah. um, I'm like, okay, like, Hey, like, what am I doing here? Did you notice that I just moved up in the box? Did you notice that I crowded the plate more with two strikes? Those pieces of information, right. And everybody's challenge point is going to be a little bit different, but you know, on those days where you have bullpens, try to add as much of that as you can. Yeah. Obviously like, you know, your lower recovery days, it doesn't really make sense. Um, you know, try to, I've tried to get guys on the mound on moderate intensity days just to have context with that volume and everything totally dependent on the dude. But, you know, you add that in, you'll be able to find that missing link. Cause you'll have some guys, you know, they'll call them training heroes where they're like, they'll come in, light it up in a bullpen or light up the radar gun, but you put them in a game situation and then they, for lack of a better term, shit the bed. Yeah. But, Cause they never practiced it, you know, yeah. it's that piece that you need to add in. So for sure. Training heroes. That's, that's a, that's a good term. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give, I'll give uh, Anthony Brady, our director of sports science, a shout out. Cause he talks about this a lot. He talks about it on the podcast too, just about, you know, in a training environment like driveline um, you're, it's very safe because you're typically just t- chasing one goal, whether it's, you know, we're doing an intended zones, bullpen we're chasing one goal of or maybe two goals you know how can we let's keep our velocity up how can we minimize the miss distance and also keep our movement profile and velocity and then in a velo day we have one goal and that's just to light up the radar gun Mm -hmm. and that's very safe because it's it's not there's you don't have to worry about all the other contacts that you do in the game and he he supports the idea he supports the idea of just kind of adding in to the mound blending process, adding in this live AB session where we're there and we're seeing it and we're collecting this data still, but they don't get to see their movement profile, every pitch. They don't get to see their velocity, every pitch they're facing a batter and they're in a, in a more real scenario, as real as we can really make it. Um, But if we're, and just like, they're not going to have, track man data available to them. Um, sometimes they might, you know, like some MLB stadiums have, have yeah. it displayed or whatever, but most, most people don't, most people don't have access to sometimes even velocity when they're in the inning. So they can't like, they'll have to figure out other ways to determine, okay, that pitch, it was a strike or it was a ball, but was it, a, was it a good pitch or do I need to make an adjustment and mm-hmm. getting people to be able to do that without looking at the iPad, every pitch, um, is something that we can do better probably. And, and yeah, it's going to take an active effort. That's a great point. So I was at this past fall, I was at a power five school. I'll I'll leave the the school name out of it, but I was there (laughs) watching their, their draft day and they had the track man data put up on their big jumbotron. And after each pitch, they'd throw it. And then you'd see like the pitcher, everybody just kind of like turn their head and look at them like, what's going on right now? Like you guys aren't going to really have this in the game. Like don't lean on this too much, especially, you know, when you're in scout, they like, they want to see how you Mm -hmm. compete. They don't, I mean, yeah, they look at the numbers, but that's just one piece of the puzzle that they're going to look at, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I like that addition where it's like, Hey, like don't ask me what the velo is, you know, or don't look and see what your pitch profile was. Just compete, dude. Get in there. Be a bulldog. Yeah. And I mean, we've still firmly believe that there's a place for that. Like a lot of early on, especially there there were, um, there were some like more traditional coaches that would get so mad when they saw, uh, videos of an, of a hitter, like taking a swing, looking like right at the hit track screen and seeing Mm -hmm. what the exit velocity and the, the launch angle were. It's like, that's, I mean, that it might just be really good training feedback for them. If you're in a training setting, you're trying to make changes, whether they're mechanical or in intent changes, whatever, like sometimes you need good feedback in order to, you know, develop or uh, create certain adaptations, but then it's just two different settings. You have two different goals. That's to make changes. And then once you're trying, once you've kind of transfer the, or once you've, they're a little bit more sticky and you're trying to transfer those to actual in-game performance, then maybe it's time to take those away. And it's like a spectrum more than uh, one's right and one's wrong. Yeah. Well, and you know, once, like you said, once it starts to get sticky, um, you know, you want to, tra- you, you want to not use that as a crutch as much mm-hmm. you know, or even take the training wheels off as fast as you can. And in, in my opinion, cause you don't want to lean on it and then 
when you don't have it, you don't have that kinesthetic feel to relate to, to be able, be able to tell the difference, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. For sure. Do you, have you found ways to kind of one assess, uh, and two, like help develop somebody's kinesthetic awareness. Cause I think that's a really good point. And I think they're like certain athletes are going to have better, better yeah. feel. I think it's, uh, it's just a fancy word for field to be for, no. for yeah. like, like a, but I think it, there's a range, like most athletes, uh, like some athletes don't have a ton of feel. Some athletes have a ton or whatever, and they, they might be able to make changes quickly. Do you have a, a good way to assess that and kind of, yeah. well, as you know, definitely person specific, because like you said, each guy has a different level of feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but for example, let's say like percentage in a, in a bullpen, right? And I'm like, hey, I don't want you to look at the radar gun. I just want you to go off based off of your own feel. This is your RP or like, hey, you're at like 80% right now. Mm-hmm. And then they're coming in. And then, you know, they're like, okay, yeah, this feels good. All right, cool. Let's bump it up to 82 and then see how everything feels there. And you're like, I'm looking back. I'm like, okay, yes, the velocity's going up. So his perceived effort is going up. It's not yeah. just looking in there. And then you're like, okay, cool. Let's get to the goal of the day is just be at 85%. We're not going to try to, you know, yeet it too much. So he gets up to that 85 and I'm like, all right, now let's add in a stand-in hitter. Or I go, I go down there and I stand in. And then he's like, okay. And then all of a sudden something changes. You're, you can just physically tell or like there's the tensest, like stuff you can't really measure. It's like those mm-hmm. Where you're just like, all right, man, like your tempo definitely changed or, you know, something's off here. So then you're like, okay, like I'll back out. Let's do this again. Feel that feeling. Okay, cool. I'm going to step back in, take that same feel. And then, you know, don't tense up, relax, whatever it is for that guy. I'm just using uh, one like case example. I have, yeah. that's kind of like how I would flirt with it. And you're, you're flirting with that challenge point. You know what I'm saying? You don't want it to be too challenging to the point where, they just spray balls everywhere and they're like, Oh my God, just threw eight balls in a row because you just stood in. I'm like, okay, yeah, clearly when a hitter stands in is where your challenge point is. Um, but then you're just kind of like nudging it back and forth. Or even if it's like, okay, Hey, he's really comfortable with a righty, but as soon as the lefty comes in then it's like, all right, well, yeah, well, let's start with righty. Once you feel comfortable and you're at that, you know, level that you're at today and you get a good feel for your stuff. All right, last batter, let's challenge it a little bit more. Let's get through a hole at bat with a lefty. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. I feel like that's one of the many aspects of the art of coaching. I think no doubt. It's it's like the it's the same thing that like video game manufacturers have to work yeah. out, right? Like you're trying to you're trying to make get pe- it's like a your goal is to obviously make it more addicting, but like um people need to get better. It needs to be the right difficulty. You have to be able to personalize it for, for each of the the gamers or whatever. And I think like we just, we just launched this um, new training ball called we're calling it smash factor baseballs. Um, they're like basically like light flight um, balls, just super, they're, they're pretty light and they're shaped like a baseball and they're really hard to hit if you put them at a full, full, um, full velocity. Cause they like, based on the way they hit the bat it just like kind of magnifies your misses hmm. um so if if you just have we can't just put a machine on it like 90 miles an hour throw in the smash factor balls and have a new hitter or like a high school hitter or something come in and then just not adjust it you know we got to figure out how we can either by changing well, okay let's not use smash factor balls yet let's like keep the velocity yeah. and mix in uh, regular baseballs or keep the smash factor and just drop the velocity and like, yeah, find that, find that line where you're challenging them enough. You found their challenge point, but, um, but still also getting them better. That's interesting. That's fire. Yeah, no doubt, dude. No doubt. What other rabbit holes you've been going down? I'm sure you got plenty of them out there. Yeah. The other, the only other one that I am really passionate about and um, uh, wanted to, wanted to mention was an individualized, like, mechanical adjustment approach where um kind of we, what we were talking about with changes kind of sticking for an athlete yeah. um so i think some changes in mechanics are easier to change than others for example you might be able to change somebody's arm action a little bit 
faster. That might be able, might be able to get it to stick a little bit faster. Um, you might be able to get somebody's lead leg block to be a little bit stronger, uh, quicker, but one of the ones that it seems like it's pretty hard to change is uh, hip shoulder separation or uh, what position your pelvis is in um, throughout the throw and, and at foot plan and everything. So yeah. the rabbit hole that I was going down before was trying to figure out, okay, how can I quantitatively, how can I, instead of giving everybody a kind of a model approach where like in biomechanics terms, it's like, you should, instead of telling everybody you need to get your pelvis open to 40 degrees uh, towards the plate, um, that, that's like the threshold or whatever. If you're over that, you're good. If you're under that, we need to work on it. Instead of doing that, saving those stick, those, those like mechanical things that are harder to change, keeping them, accepting them, and then figuring out what are the, what are, what are our changeable things that we can yeah. uh, use to kind of maximize your ability and your performance based on those hard to change things. So for example, like, I think my theory is that it's all a big timing thing. I don't know what the anchor is, but my first attempt was if your pelvis positions 30 degrees at foot plant, then maybe that just means after foot plant, you need more time to complete your, uh, delivery. So that means if you're close, if your pelvis is more closed at foot plant, your lead leg block needs to be later your arm, you, you talk about the, the arm flip up, like that needs to happen later probably because you still need to continue rotating before. Um, for example, like your arm should probably flip up later relative to foot plant. If your pelvis is really closed versus if your pelvis is really open and you're already like closer to being uh, ready to deliver the pitch. So yeah. it'd be really cool for me. Um, and I've looked at a couple of different things, but the, the main one was, based on pelvis position, what does your arm position need to be at, at foot plant and then kind of, um, gearing rec- or mechanical recommendations around, uh, the, those hard to change things versus, uh, giving everybody kind of a, what we think, um, on average is, is going to make you better. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to shotgun it because, you know, everybody's physiology is a little bit different, mm-hmm. um, with that. So, yeah, that's definitely not an easy answer because I've you know you, you run through that and you can tell whenever it's synced up and it looks good. Like you said, the timing of it, it's like okay, yeah, wow, that was that looked smooth, that looked fluid. Mm-hmm. You have other ones where it was just really rigid, and you're like, what was that even trying to do? And a lot of it, you just as a coach ask better questions. You're like, hey, what were you trying to do there? Oh, hell yeah, I was just really trying to like pull my elbow back or you know whatever. I'm like, okay. <laughs> let's, let's come down from there right like work yeah well and my thing is my i guess i don't know if you call it philosophy but it's just like hey like this why yeah guys to, to focus on more is think more proximal versus further away right the yeah towards their hand or towards their elbow that they get the more uh you know just stiff and rigid that they get it's yeah, let that thing hang yeah Oh, exactly. And to your point earlier on, like having 50 other cues being thrown at him, a bunch of other stuff. It's like, this isn't going to be, um, like helpful at all because mm-hmm. the kid's trying to process all this information and like, okay, like, what do I, what, do, what should I do? Hey, how about just be an athlete, dude? Like, mm-hmm. you know, be fluid with it and give them the, I view plyos as a way for them to problem solve. Mm-hmm. So what solutions are their brain and their body deciding to do based off of whatever drill that they're trying to do? Right. And I, I used to kind of try to fit guys to be and look a certain way. And I've honestly steered clear away from that a lot uh, because, you know, everybody's going to be different, physiologically different. Like you said, if you wanted to change arm action, like, yeah, you could do that. Obviously looking at physiological differences, right? Like, if a guy's arms like super low, do you really want to change that? Is it a physiological limitation or is it just a result of, Oh, Hey, this kid just throws on flat ground all the time. And then he actually gets on the mound a lot more and gets up here. Um, one athlete that comes to mind that I worked with that did that was Rohan Honda, right? A lot of flat ground work, a lot of other, um, you know, just trying to get things going through. And he was one of those guys who would be intentional with his arm. Yeah. Look like this be loose. 
sure enough, we kind of stumbled on it, honestly, where we were on a mound that was a little bit higher of an incline and that environment actually helped him go get up and actually be able to get behind it. So, you know, you got, you got to take all those. That's why I'm big on eco D and yeah, for um, sure. A lot of sports science real quick. A lot of sports sciences are really focused on the individual. Oh yeah. They don't, Think about dirt mound versus mound, right? Task, environment, organism. It's it's a triage. But if you're if you're just focused on the organism so much, and that's so much louder of what you're looking at, mm-hmm. you're missing the whole the whole picture. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's a matter of collecting data and like with because because sports. I mean, sports science and data. Are, yeah, you're, uh, you're observing and yep. a true scientist where you go back to like Isaac Newton. Oh, yeah. hey, why did that apple fall from the tree? Okay. Yeah. There's this thing called gravity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's pretty much it. Like that's how science started. And you're literally just sitting there observing and drawing conclusions to certain things, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think sports science can, can bridge that gap a little bit. One, by obviously collecting data in more game-like scenarios, trying to make your, your lab setting less lab um, and yeah. just like, either one making it more game like and two blocking anything that isn't game like like trying to either um make the athlete forget about it or whatever so that's one big thing and then the other big thing is just making sure that when you do collect data you're you're also collecting those environmental or demographic variables so mm-hmm. um you know like even if it's even if it's something about their training history or if it's something about time of year or if it's something about like um i'm a viewer is huge or even yeah. you know i was on a conversation with a padres coach um a few weeks ago i was like hey do you ever take into account like ball flight metrics and like if they're playing at coors field versus somewhere in florida mm-hmm. and in, inside a dome or you know outside in a humid environment like houston with the dome with with their you know uh stadium retracted open like or if it's closed in like does that actually change Maybe yeah small amount but it's like that's the, that's the little things that you kind of have to look into that it's a lot of additional stuff to think about, but it For sure. matters. Yeah. And from the data perspective, it's a sports scientist's job to collect those environment, as many of those important uh, environmental variables for each data point as possible. So if the thing I'm actually trying to measure is biomechanics or if it's velocity or if it's spin metrics, like you were saying, like mm-hmm. we're also, we also need to be responsible for those five, 10, 15 other environmental variables that should also be taken into account. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. No doubt. No doubt. Well, Kyle, before I let you go, you got any other closing thoughts or questions or anything else you want to let the the people in the zone know about? Yeah. Um, I have a, I'll, I'll ask you a question first and then I'll, I'll quickly plug my, uh, the driveline RD podcast, but yeah, uh, plug, that. Um, plug all your, your social handles, all that for sure. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, sorry, I'm getting my slacks blown up. Um, what's your preferred method for learning? And like baseball is obviously adapting all the time. Some of it's noise, some of it's not, uh, what's your preferred method for like learning new things and then applying it for coaching and testing it out and seeing what you want to kind of use to develop that philosophy a little bit more learning new things as myself as a coach or that the player learning new things. Uh, yourself as a coach. Okay. My preferred environment, learning new things. I learn by doing right. So I'm, I'm really big into, if I'm going to try it myself, I'm going to go in and, you know, try to throw as slow as I might, I may throw, like I'm still going to try something out and, you know, feel it out or whether it's something on the, um, you know, weight room side of things or, you know, any type of movement, like, okay, hey, like, let me try this out and see if I can relate to it to be able to communicate this with an athlete, right? So that's that's kind of where I'm at with that is I, I want to try it first. And then if I feel like it makes sense, then, then I'll take it to the next level and start to introduce it to a handful of guys. Yeah. Uh, where, where I've made mistakes in the past is like, I'll try it for a little bit. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, now everybody that I coach does this. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, 
I'm not going to name any particular modalities, but it's like, you know, everybody needs this thing to help with blank piece of their delivery. And I'm like, nah, (laughs) you know, I'm like one thing that works for you, maybe the worst thing for this guy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think a lot of people, especially like myself who didn't get to, or weren't good enough to play uh, Mm -hmm. college and professional baseball, like early on, a lot of people were just talking about how just because you're a coach doesn't mean, or you just because you're a professional player doesn't mean you were a good coach. Um, But at the same time, it's, it's like, it's a huge benefit. It's a huge benefit because if you still have the mind of being open to other ideas and not approaching it like what worked for me is the way that it needs to do because it worked for me um if you are able to balance both that's like that's the premium coach right because you can you can just like you said you can feel it out better communicate it and if the way that you communicate it with yourself is not necessarily the way uh you communicate it to the athlete or the athlete understands it like you still need to have that mind for okay, let's try some uh, various different things, but it's still like a, an amazing place to start and, and going to give you an advantage over somebody who doesn't have the, the movement experience and the, and the competition experience and things oh, where yeah. to, to know what it actually feels like. For sure. Dude, I think, yeah, that's, that's a really good point because you have some guys that like, you know, if you've thrown 95 plus before, like it's a different kind of feeling versus someone who's thrown only 85, 90. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side of that, like you said, if you don't know how to communicate that, or if you never struggled, like I respect the guys more that have like gotten up to that velo, have lost it, or they've had injuries or whatever, um, you know, and then they found a way back to, mm-hmm. to that because now they can actually feel the difference and know what it's like when versus like them just actually picking something up. For example, like um, we'll just use a hitter that rotates really well and you know that you have a kid who challenges is is to rotate and you're like okay why is this kid like not able to just do this like, mm-hmm. this comes easy to me because i have the movement capacity to do yeah. it. this kid doesn't have the movement capacity to do it so it's like then that's where they could just get frustrated and some coaches are like all right well you just don't got it or it right yeah Versus guys like me and you, I think they're not coachable. Yeah. Not coachable. No, (laughs) no, dude. They just physically can't do it. (laughs) Um, But like guys like me and you, right. Like we've had to, to grind to try to get to any point wherever we're at. And we had a little bit of a lesser, I guess you call it feel or whatever. But then like, as you start to, to practice more and do it more, you're like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Or you start to have conversations, right? Where you have places like, you know, driveline or wherever else where you, you communicate with other people like, Oh, you know, like I actually don't think that, like, I think about just being as loose as possible. I don't think about trying to bustle up and really yeah. force it. And you're like, Oh, that's probably why I spike all my curveballs or whatever. Cause I feel this, you know? So like, yeah, that's another piece of, you know, all that kind of coming together and being able to, to connect the dots. Yeah, for sure. Last thing I'll say on this as well, I think it's really fun for people who, like you mentioned, people who got to a point of performance, kind of lost it for a second and had to fight fight all the way back. It's really fun seeing athletes who are later in their careers. They clearly still have the physical attributes. Sometimes they'll flash like this performance or that performance, whether it's velocity or, or, uh, or a pitch profile or whatever. And it's like, sometimes it's hard to get back to where they were because they think about how they felt in like then, like even the same person can have different feels can have different, um, physical capacities. So it's fun seeing like, sometimes it just, it just takes simplifying it for that athlete and having them just focus on less, less don't focus so intently on how you used to feel, how, what you used to do to get there. Yeah. Let's try to re let's try to remap this a little bit, focus on the performance that you're trying to, uh, you're trying to achieve. And then, explore a little bit, loosen up, see what works now. And it's not always going to be the same, same thing that worked five, 10, 15 years uh, before. No doubt. I, that, I love that. You know, you hear that saying all the time. You're like, no man steps in the same river twice. Mm-hmm. You're never the same person and the river, the water is never the same. So you can't yeah. you know, use those past experiences as your anchor 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It can't, it's okay to like use those for as, as experience and as data for, for what to explore in the future, but you can't, yeah, you can't be anchored on it. Can't, can't not be able to move from it. Yeah. Exploring the word explore is huge. A lot of people are very rigid in their thought process and that reflects their movement capacities too, because they're like, I have to do this. I have to do it. Ah, man, like go just try something different. I've been really big on Edo portal, you know, and it's just like, go move, go yeah. human. Yeah. Go do some handstands, do try some yeah. things, get, get yourself in different, uh, different environments. Well, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Twitter handles, Kyle Lindley underscore. Um, I don't have a business Instagram, but, um, I am one of the hosts of the driveline RD podcast. So if you're interested in wow. research and a lot of times we have coaches on as well, but, uh, we talk about baseball analytics and, and kind of honestly a wide, wide range of topics. So driveline RD podcasts on all the podcast platforms and uh on youtube as well we're actually starting to i don't know if you've messed around with this at all but we're starting to release video episodes on spotify and whatnot so we take the same mp4 file and uh and upload it to spotify too so um yeah if anybody's interested tune in might be a move we'll see yeah yeah it's fun takes a takes a little bit extra work trying to trying to figure out how you want to make it look and everything but it's cool yeah no doubt Well, Kyle, appreciate you coming on. And for those of you listening, stay in the zone. Thanks, guys.